so, you know, it's, it's not a dominant narrative for the folks who are saying in the comments for any promotions around this South Africa journey. It's not a dominant narrative that like, what do the women in South Africa know about midwifery? For many of them, they're born into it. You know, for many of the young schoolgirls, they come home and they know how to fetch the water and they know what herbs are needed and they know how to do the prayers and the rituals and they know how to count the moons and they know how to understand the earth as medicine and they know how to recover their mother or themselves from childbirth. So it's not entirely true that the South African woman knows nothing about traditional midwifery, but it's also not entirely true that traditional midwifery is the dominant modality for childbirth, um, medicine, and, you know, the reproductive spectrum. Tasha Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Lily Nichols, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Man, my guest today is becoming a very, very quick friend. So much so that she recently invited me to go to South Africa with her and some other amazing birth workers in order to sit with some traditional midwives in the townships bordering the massive city of Johannesburg, South Africa. And of course, I was like, gosh, that's, I don't know if I can, yeah, definitely sign me up. Like, it's like an instant hell yes. My wife was like, baby, you got to do these things. Like these things are, these awesome opportunities come up and I oftentimes turn things down. But uh, I was like, hell yeah. And my compadre, Sarah Rosser, my co-creator on the Born Free Method, she's also going. And we're going to have an awesome time just using two ears, one mouth, just listening, really kind of experiencing, filling into the realities of, of <laughs> the ongoing realities of post-apartheid South Africa. So that is awesome. And um, at the time of this recording, I'm in Oceanside waiting on the birth of a baby. Because that's what we do as birth workers. <laughs> it's what we do. We sit with birth. So I've been here waiting and waiting and waiting for about three weeks now. My wife and girls came. And man, watching our toddler, or not a toddler, she's like a kid now, Penny, nearly four years old, Interact with the ocean is just one of the greatest things ever. And of course, our little toddler, Evie, is definitely right behind her sister. It really makes us thoughtful about going back to the West Coast, the best coast. Kentucky's great, don't get me wrong. It's just not Southern California. It's hard to, it's hard to disagree with that. My wife got stung with a stingray. Anybody ever been hit with a stingray? Good Lord. I was talking to some of my first surfer friends, and one of them said that the barbs, like depending on how big the stingray is, the barbs are like they're like you know cartilage, and they they whip them so hard that they can shatter like your toes, they can shred through tendon. So fortunately, my wife just had like a pop puncture on the top of her foot, and thirty minutes later, she was like, "This is getting to be like as bad as childbirth." 
And I was like, oh, my God. So she went to the lifeguard and the lifeguard said, well, about 30 minutes or so after um, the stingray, you're probably not going to be able to walk and talk. And meanwhile, it was like she had already been 30 minutes in. And they were like, oh, my God, go home. <laughs> so she hobbled back, got in the car, drove herself back. I stayed with the girls at the beach and uh, she put her foot in hot water and it, it did help. And then like a week after she's at goes back home and gets bit with a, by a spider, two bites in her same foot. And it was all puffy. It looked like a Shrek foot. So we nipped that one in the butt. I just am hoping that like the third thing isn't that she has an anvil <laughs> from the sky just randomly falling, crush her tootsies. But um, hoping my wife's speedy recovery. Yeah, California is pretty great. I had to like bring all of my gear out here, all the resuscitation equipment, all the sutures, all the all the stuff that I hope I don't have to use. I had to get a um, renta oxygen tank at the local medical supply store. It's just a part of this traveling birth work thing, which is not a financially very lucrative thing for me to do. Um, as I've been working just like always, day in and day out, in order to keep up our, our finances. But the couple that I'm attending to, they're friends. It's Drew Canoli, who owns a company called Organifi. If you haven't heard about Organifi, go to Organifi.com slash beloved. Pick up, pick up my recommendations. Pick up some green juice, red juice, gold latte. If you're a female, pick up some of their cacao harmony. These are some of the highest quality um, whole food enrichments to your to your already healthy lifestyle that you can imagine. Um, and they just came out with their pumpkin spice gold latte, which is like a, a perennial favorite. It's just so freaking good. It's like f autumn and marshmallows had a baby. So delicious. There's a lot of like lemon balm in it and then clove and all the pumpkin spice flavors, but um, lemon balm and, and some um, turmeric and there's some coconut milk, you know, powdered coconut milk into it. It's creamy. It's delicious. It is just so good. It's like if you took a, um, like a pumpkin pie and melted it and put it into a cup. And that pumpkin pie, of course, was um, loaded with gluten-free, glyphosate-free, organic ingredients. That's what you get with their gold latte. It's unbelievable. I'm going to probably bring some with me as a little sleep aid because it definitely helps you get, you know, more restful sleep at night. I'll probably bring that with me to South Africa to help with the time zone differences. We're going to be talking to Savannah Brown. She's the National Director of Restore Forward, RestoreNY.org. You can find her work at Restore Forward on Instagram. She nailed it by getting that that handle. That's awesome. It's not like Restore Forward 217. It's like just Restore Forward. She's a black doula, an advocate for maternity care change. She is a sister from another, from another mister. Um, I am so stoked to be with her in South Africa. We're bringing this episode, episode to you in case you want to support her work in some way. Of course, there's plenty of time to sign up. Go to RestoreNY.org. You'll see all the information. We'll put a link directly to that subpage on their website. We'd love to have you there. If you're a listener, come on to South Africa with me and Sarah Rosser and Savannah Brown. Um, you're gonna, there's a lot of education in this episode, right? There's a lot of compli complicated politics and policies and a history in South Africa, which is really not, it's not the same as in the United States, but racism and this sort of systemic violence perpetrated against those less fortunate is not like a unique thing to sub-Saharan Africa. But um, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to be thoughtful about here. I just loved this interview. And um, remember, this is all like public forward-facing education. It's all free. 
So we do have a couple sponsors. Mentioned Organifi, but also go check out BirthFit. BirthFit is providing um, personalized lifestyle and strength and conditioning programming for pregnant and postpartum women. This is not something you find at LA Fitness or Planet Fitness or whatever. People need, the, the trainer that you seek out needs to have very, very specific skills, a way of assessing you during the different trimesters, during the postpartum period. Hang on one second. And uh, there's not many people out there who do that, but birth fit professionals do. I've done their certification. It is stellar. It really opened, opened my eyes up, even given that I've committed myself to lifestyle and to all this other stuff. I learned so much from their training. These coaches are out of this world. Amazing. So um, birthfit.com is where you can find them. If you want to find a coach, you can also sign up and become a coach yourself if you're already a health coach or if you're a doula, childbirth educator, shit, if you're a doctor, midwife. There's definitely something in this program for you. Um, go to birthfit.com, use code BELOVED. You can save 20% on their postpartum basics program, which is great. I also did that right after the birth of our second. I actually did it myself and my wife, um, she also jumped in. And then um, you can also use that code BELOVED in order to get a free month in the B community. We're going to meet like-minded people. That community is built by women for women just like you. And um, there is... This, too much to say about what they're offering at such a low monthly rate of $24.99, but you'll get your first month free. You're going to love it. Just go and cash that in. Just cash it in. It's like you're finding $5 in your pocket. Just go spend it on something or give it to somebody, right? Go, go give it to somebody who needs a meal. Um, this is just such a great, a great offering. So go and cash that in. Check out BirthFit, Lindsay Cantu and her team. Congrats to Lindsay. You just had a baby, by the way. And then um, We Natal, of course, is my new pre favorite prenatal vitamin. You're going to get all the nutrition without having to take 10 capsules per day. You're going to have all the right vitamin D, folate, uh, vitamin, what did I say? Vitamin D, folate, <laughs> the other B vitamins, choline. I mean, there's so many reasons to have a little additional insurance that you're getting adequate nutrition for you, your placenta, your baby, as you go through this tremendous process of building a human and then birthing a human earthside. So what I love about We Natal is, in addition to it only being three capsules today versus um, 10 capsules per day, they send you a journal to help, you know, dial in the mental and emotional and even spiritual aspects of this whole process. And they're very, very thoughtful about how much packaging they're using. So there's a good reason that me and Dr. Hyman, who's kind of the face of functional medicine, love this product beyond just the nutritional um, and the, the sort of mind-body connection that they take. They also are very, very thoughtful about using recycled materials. And when you subscribe, which you can do at weenatal.com slash beloved, they'll send you glass jars and then sleeves of capsules to refill those glass jars every month. So you're not going through these big bulky canisters and all this paper, you know, stuffing and whatnot. They're actually able to minimize that. If we don't care for the planet, guys, it doesn't matter what happens to humans. Like we're going to perish with it. So they're very, very thoughtful about that. And I think that that's a really, really nice attribute that WeNatal brings to the space that a lot of other prenatal companies are not doing, vitamin companies. Um, as a listener of the show, if you go there and you add any prenatal product and uh, to the checkout, and then you add a bottle of their new Omega DHA Plus, which is a super high quality fish oil. Um, I personally wish that there was a little bit more EPA per capsule because you end up having to take quite a few. Um, I always tell people at least aim for a gram of, of EPA daily. There's, there's a variety of different omega-3s, four in particular. The one that you want in your prenatal is EPA, which is converted to DHA, which has all of its beautiful omega-3 effects around the body. And um, of, of course, it's also relevant for the development of your baby's brain and a lot of other tissues. So 
Um, anyways, you can get a free bottle of that with a purchase of any prenatal products at wenatal.com slash beloved. Take advantage of this, guys. Like, let them know you're listening. Go and cash in on this code. Try it out. Uh, this has replaced, the, this is my recommendation for the prenatal vitamins out there. And um, I hope it will be for a long time. But, you know, everybody's out there competing. There's lots of competition. This just so happens to be my favorite right now. Um, and if we were going to have another baby, which we aren't, this is the company I would go with. So wenatal.com slash beloved. Organifi, BirthFit, Wenatal. Thank you guys so much for entrusting me with your brand. I only bring on sponsors who are fully in alignment with what I do. And you guys are definitely it. All right. Savannah Brown. Restore Forward. You've heard from her before. She's She's been on here on the podcast in the past. You heard her through Ricky Lake's film, The Business of Birth Control. Ricky Lake is actually the one who put us in touch. While I've been down here, I actually visited Ricky in her beautiful Malibu home. Oh, my God. What a view. What a view. 15th anniversary of the business of being born. She gave me a T-shirt, and I wear it with pride. It's pink. It's beautiful. It feels so good in pink. Makes me look more tan than I actually am. <laughs> um, anyways, I digress. Savannah's here. Enjoy this conversation, guys. Follow Savannah at Restore Forward on Instagram. And um, come with us to South Africa, RestoreNY.org, if anything here touches you in any way. And of course, I will announce a special little offer at the very, very end of the episode. So tune in for that. Here's my friend Savannah Brown, everybody. <music> A month from today, I'm going to be in South Africa. And Sarah Rosser, my counterpart at Born Free Method, we're going to be going to South Africa with you, Savannah. Thanks for inviting us. And sort of to honor that invitation, I invited you back to talk a little bit about this program, which Sarah and I, by the way, are fucking stoked. I can't tell you how excited we yeah. are. Yeah. Um, so tell me, why, why South Africa? Like, why are we going to South Africa? goodness i'm so excited first of all nathan and i'm glad to be back here in this seat with you looking at you and honoring all the work that you do and, and thank you for the mutuality snapping over here you know a couple of years ago, yeah. <laughs> a couple of years ago we were in conversation with machilo mozi who is known as a just badass anti-rape activist anti-violence activist um, really known for her work in preventing violence against women in South Africa. And we were having a conversation with her about the intersection of anti-violence work and holistic medicine and how necessary that is, especially for U.S.-based practitioners to understand that because the medical system in the United States is you know, based on steeped in violence against women, unfortunately, historically, in addition to medical racism, medical misogyny. And so, you know, she was like, well, do you know, because we were talking about the maternal mortality and morbidity crisis in the U.S. And she was like, do you know that there are midwives here in the mountains of South Africa who've never lost a mother? Like, not one. <laughs> and she like looked at me with, with conviction. To say I mean, that's that, pretty you know, and I think myself, 
Yeah, I I mean, in that moment, myself and Farrah Tanis, the CEO of Restore Forward, looked back and forth at each other. And we were like, how is that possible? And she started sharing with us, you know, she was like, well, because they use ancestral practices, because they use indigenous wisdom, because they're not using the interventions and the unnecessary, you know, procedures and medicines that you all (laughs) The problems that we create and then we come in as heroes to solve, right? (laughs) Yeah. Simply. Simply and brilliantly put. Um, So we said to ourselves, like, we got to go. We need to go see what this, what this means. Like what, what we need to make mm -hmm. sense of this for ourselves and for our communities, because we know inherently that that's true. However, we have we we have no idea where to start, and what we need yeah. to do is humble ourselves and be in a commitment to learn. You know, I think when people hear the word violence, like let's talk about obstetric violence just for a second. I think what people think is that a sharp thing is hurting you, or somebody's hitting you, or somebody's pinning you down, and that's all obstetric violence. But as I've I've been thinking about this for years, um, and by the way, I'll share very quickly. There was a a, a black woman who had given birth like six times at the hospital where I trained for residency and she was back and everybody was so familiar with her because they had all like she had had back to back babies just over and over some miscarriages, some losses, but she was always coming back and they knew her like they knew her as soon as she walked in the door, like there's so-and-so. And there was one time when she came in pregnant again, was on the monitors and decided she just wanted to leave, <laughs> like went to Taco Bell down the street. She just walked out and they were like, Dr. Riley, you have to stop her. And I'm like, I was just admiring her. I was like, she's just being an adult. Like she's just walking away. But most people feel compelled due to the potential fear of something, you know, some punitive measure for them to go against the the white person in the white coat. And this is obviously deeply threaded within the fabric of our society. So I think violence and racism go hand in hand. And I don't think that they would have done that, expected me to intervene if it was a white woman. I just don't think it was the case. So I just sat in admiration of this, like what a strong human just saying, no, no, thank you. And walking away kind of set the the stage for my whole platform on like personal accountability and childbirth. Like you ultimately have to say, and I have to honor that Mm -hmm. I'm here to serve you, not the other way around. So, so. Oh my God. What a beautiful amazing story i was like i wish i like could hang out with her and have coffee with her because she is like a real that's a badass like that is somebody who really knows what they stand for and i I just really admire that and um and so anyways you know it seems tangential but i think that when we're talking about the history of gynecology and obstetrics particularly in the united states you know this term traditional midwifery comes up and it's kind of a charged term now because I don't think too many people really appreciate what does traditional midwifery really mean. And I want to also add that, you know, and I'd love to get into this a little bit with you is, is some of the sordid history and why I think there is such a, um, an oppressive level of this underlying racism within the care of, of black women in particular in the hospital systems, which largely are run by people that look like me. We have to also consider like the godfather of gynecology, J. Marion Sims, experimenting on women without anesthesia to develop really probably important procedures, but using women who were very disenfranchised and really had no way around it. You know, um, I just made t-shirts. I'm going to send you one, by the way, that says J. Marion Sims was a bitch and it has his face on it. 
I'll have one for South Africa. But anyways, you know, we've so we've got this rich history. When people are 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 talking about the the role of racism in in our socioeconomic health disparities, I think all of these terms are relevant. So, um, so when a person talks about a traditional midwife, what I'm what I'm sort of uh, presuming is when we go to South Africa with Restore Forward. And guys, by the way, if you want to check it out, Restore, what is it? Uh, Restore NY, say, say the website again. That word. So it's www.restoreny.org. Restore NY, sorry. NY like New York. Okay. Awesome. So go and check that out, guys. I think that you will um, find that there's quite a bit, you know, if you want to support these types of campaigns. But tell me what a traditional midwife is. I'm hoping that I'm going to be sitting with some, some in, in honoring traditional midwifery when oh we're gosh. on our trip together. Yeah, 100% you will be. And, and like, this is the exciting part about this journey to South Africa is that the midwives, what I will also say about these amazing midwives that you'll be experiencing in South Africa is yes, they identify as traditional midwives. And they also ended, identify as indigenous midwives. And they also identify as mm. traditional healers. So for many of them, midwifery is not a profession. It's not even really a call. It's, it's a spiritual obligation that comes with Ooh. endowed wisdom. Love that. So it's like I am <laughs> drenched with the dreams of my aunt's 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 aunt, who was a midwife who understood anatomy, who understood medicine, who understood healing, who understood care work, who understood, you know, the scriptures of medicine, really, and left me those messages and intercedes in my spiritual life, whether it be dreaming or otherwise, plant relations or otherwise, how to discern that same medicine, how to read that same medicine, read the sky, read the ground, read the water, read the body, read the belly, read the uterus, all of these different things. So for them, traditional means tradition, ancestry, indigeneity, medicine mm. passed on. And for so many of the midwives who you'll meet and be able to speak to, they don't like kind of largely like fall into this like narrow chasm of what midwifery means very narrow <laughs> to yeah. us yeah, as it's a very specific US, thing here yeah. us comers. <laughs> yeah us comers right um and not to like dismiss the vast expansiveness of african-american traditional midwifery which you know for them they would say like we're mm. the medicine woman in the community like for everyone you don't have to be have a fetus in your belly to like need midwifery care so i'm not saying it to misdiagnose our understanding of what midwifery in the u.s is but to just provide a more expansive definition that these midwives shared with me, which was that, you know, they come from lineages of traditional healers hmm. and they can't help who those yeah. people were <laughs> and how they operated and what kinds of medicine they brought. They land in that lineage. They land in that genealogy. Um, and because the sacredness of birth and birth keeping is a part of traditional healing and traditional healing medicine, midwifery is, mm. is, is revered. Wow. So that, you know, when we sit at the feet of these midwives, we're sitting with them 
from that perspective, from that vantage point, from that like larger tree of, of, of traditional healers that they call themselves a member of, that they call themselves a part of, that they call themselves yeah. in the constellation wow. of. So I'm really grateful that they, you know, they honor our limitations when we're there. They, they, they respect <laughs> our, our ignorance. They, you know, they, they, you know, they, they laugh and poke fun at us even because of how limited our, our understandings yeah. are. And yet they are extremely generous with their time, with their ritual, with their examples, with their course correcting, you know? Um, so the way that the, you know, the space takes shape is really like kind of in the form of like encounters with the midwives. So I wouldn't call them interviews, but they're like kind of these settings in which we yeah. like kind of sit and we engage and like we grapple and we ask questions and we wrestle with, and we also undo our own patriarchy, our, our own misogyny, our own injustices, our own traumas within our own bodies and where they live, right? And that is for anyone of any context of any race, background, or gender who is sitting in front yeah. of these midwives because yeah. their paradigm around health giving, caregiving, and healing is so mm. distinct from our own. So that's what traditional midwifery looks like from this seat of the South African midwives that yeah. we'll be with. You know, with so much tension in maternity care, within the United States. I mean, there's horizontal violence left and right, midwives tearing down midwives, midwives on doctors, doctors on midwives, doulas, childbirth educators, everybody's just like, as if there's some sort of limited pie that you need your like little slice and you're gonna defend it. And I think a lot of like the licensed or the certified professional midwives, they feel like there's um, no room for traditional midwives and mid traditional midwives rightfully so are like, who the hell are you? Like we've, this is the, I'm the fourth generation of somebody doing this. Just because I don't have a diploma doesn't mean I can't do this work. You know, I mean, there, there's all this tension. So um, one thing I found very interesting um, when I started promoting this journey that we're going to be going on together and, and, a, and a variety of other uh, birth workers, which, you know, towards the end, I'd love you to kind of describe the sort of um, the sort of composition of, of attendees that are going to be joining us, because I'm very excited to meet them as much as I am spending time with some of these midwives in Johannesburg. But um, some of the comments were interesting. You know, I, I think a lot of people even born and raised in, um, let's say, we'll just say South Africa, because I don't want to speak for the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa, but I do know that there's a very privatized and public way of, of approaching healthcare in many of these sort of post-colonial um, African nations. But South Africa, of course, is very special for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into, um, given Grand Apartheid and Nelson Mandela's work and, and the, the freedom movements there. But you know, before we even get into that, I just wanted to kind of um, kind of pick your brain a little bit. I don't know if you saw some of the comments that were coming in on my Instagram post, but a lot of people were sort of like, you know, women giving birth in South Africa, some of them don't even, aren't even aware of midwifery, you know, based obstetrics or, or, or midwifery care for the birth of their babies. So much, so much so, there were so, so many comments like that, that it almost seemed like there's two separate worlds in South Africa and one world doesn't know about the other and the other world probably knows about, you know, their counterpart. Maybe the midwives know about the medical system. But I, I wonder, given that, I don't know if you can, if, if you have enough insights yet on this, I'm sure we'll learn quite a bit when we go there together. But 
is this one of those kind of underground kind of subverted practices nowadays? Is that the only way that it can survive? Is that why so many women perhaps aren't considering um, midwifery, midwifery care? Is it the same reasons that many people in the U.S. are kind of stunned, you know, by this illusion of safety offered by the hospital? And so they don't even pursue an understanding of midwifery. Do you have any sort of insights there? I would love to share. I mean, there will be, there's a spectrum of midwifery that we'll look at when we get to South Africa because of the commentary that folks Mm. have named um, in the comments on the, you know, the, the promotion that you've shared about South Africa. It's not that the whole country is mobilizing around traditional midwifery in South Africa. Right. What my experience is, is that there is, in the same way that you name the tensions, the cascade, and might I say the stratification of, of birth care and maternal health care that we have in, in the U.S., you know, which includes doctors, midwives, traditional midwives, and, and hospital-based midwives, birth workers, doulas, birth keepers, right? In the same way that we have that, like, cascading yeah. stratification, we're seeing a similar... Um, schematic and ecosystem in hmm. South Africa. Um, now, the 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 specifically <laughs> specifically the um, kind of isolation or the segregation of that stratification is not only due to the political landscape in South Africa. But it's also due to mm. issues of class and also issues of difference around spirituality and lineage. Mm. So there are many factors that would inform why traditional midwifery and indigenous midwifery might be held, preserved, honored, protected in a particular aspect of South African society and mm. not in another. Right? When you land in South Africa and you plant your feet on the ground, the most visceral experience that you have is actually the ramifications of colonization. You can feel and see it right away. There's a McDonald's, there's a KFC, there's a mall. It's very metro. You feel like you're not far from Los Angeles or... This is in <laughs> Johannesburg, like right out right out the gate. Oh, interesting. At that time. Right out of the gate. However, when we journey into the villages, into the townships where the predominant aspect of life is survival, these most indigenous wisdoms and medicines are kept Mm. and held sacredly. And so when you ask the question, is it an underground practice? There's a couple of midwives that we'll talk to who have actually taken like some more main stage medical academia spaces to advocate for traditional midwifery to be centered as we've seen in the u.s yeah (laughs) and then there are others who their native language is such a sub a subculture of south africa that they don't even have access or knowledge to those kinds of spaces they just know that their medicine would be demonized, villainized, and criminalized, and and maybe even in some instances yeah. have them killed. And so they wouldn't dare step into a university setting, a political setting, or a hospital or clinical me- medical setting 
to say, oh, here's my medicine. Here's what we should be doing. Here's what we should have. Here's what we should be honoring. Here's how we've kept all of the women in my village alive for the last 600 years. <laughs> they know better than that, or they don't even have the access to that kind of space. So there is that form of stratification that exists, that form of segregation that exists amongst medicine keeping. And there are state-of-the-art hospitals in South Africa that operate just like Cedar sinai It's wild, isn't it? <laughs> so, right. right. <laughs> so, so it's not that, you know, indigenous midwifery and traditional midwifery is dominating the landscape. That's not true. And, and, and I've yet to find a place where that is true. I, I would love to go to that, yeah. that kind of Disney yeah. <laughs> for, for you and I, Chris. But that, that, that is not something I have found yet and and you know and in many ways it is a privilege that many of these midwives are allowing us the opportunity to sit at their feet to learn and gain from them because it's it, because in, in very real material ways it's a risk for them yeah. it's a risk um so so you know it's it's not a dominant narrative for the folks who are saying in the comments for any promotions around this south africa journey it's not a dominant narrative that like what do the women in South Africa know about midwifery? For many of them, they're born into it. You know, for many of the young schoolgirls, they come home and they know how to fetch the water and they know what herbs are needed and they know how to do the prayers and the rituals and they know how to count the moons and they know how to understand the earth as medicine and they know how to recover their mother or themselves from childbirth. So it's not entirely true that the South African woman knows nothing about traditional midwifery. But it's also not entirely true that traditional midwifery is the dominant yeah. modality for childbirth, um, medicine, and you know the reproductive spectrum in South hmm. Africa either. So the yeah. tension lies there as well. You know, something that comes to mind, I just finished Leah Pinneman's book, Black Earth Wisdom. What an awesome book. What an awesome yes. like like way to reframe yeah. our conservation efforts here in the United States, given that the roots of really the true conservationists actually is a in, in, sort of an inherent part of various African, um, I'm using African, not like the dumb white guy that's treating Africa like a country, but like the diaspora no. of people I'm around not. the continent yeah. of Africa. Like it's almost, it's almost like... A, as racism is threaded into the fabric of, of like contemporary U.S. society, like ecosystem conservation is actually a part of, of a variety of traditions from across the African continent. And one really compelling story that came to mind as you were talking about sort of like the herbal wisdom and whatnot was actually Harriet Tubman, who, you know, I don't think needs much introduction, at least I hope not. We're just going to presume people know who Harriet Tubman was. But she was actually like so deeply connected to to the stars and the moon and the herbs that she could use to care for people along the way as she was helping them escape the the um, the chains of slavery. And that wasn't something like she didn't go to herbalism yes. school. That was just a part of her fabric and something her mother and her grandmother and her great grandmother probably yes. all kind of just passed down. So when I hear midwife from what you're saying, yeah. you're right. It's actually more than birth. It's actually like these are people who care for other people and they understand. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it, like it requires a whole ecosystem for us to stay like <laughs> for us to like keep the ship afloat. And, you know, I'll, I'll you know, harken back to like Nelson Mandela and 
this concept of Ubuntu, which was was one of the hallmarks of really his freedom movement, was that it like it, it's actually a, even harkens back to Daniel Quinn's Ishmael, like like I am because you are, and you are because I am. I mean, there's this very very basic notion where people care for one another, and we even see that reflected in how black families care for one another in the United States before they invest maybe even in their own you know, material needs. They're caring for people. I think you even had, had told this to me once before where it's like our idea of adopting is not the same in the United States as, as, as most white people. Like you might have a kin that you're actually caring for. And that's just a part of the deal because your sister or brother passed away. That's just how we care for one another. And that actually is reflected, I think, in the most, uh, the most prescient, let's say, eco-conservation efforts as well. So this is more of a, a, a truly holistic approach, going back to that word. Yeah. Hey guys, it's Nathan. Sorry for this brief interruption, but I got to tell you about a new offering that I'm going to be uh, making available this fall. You've heard about the Born Free Method. That's our comprehensive pregnancy and postpartum program. That includes 12 months of weekly calls, 100 plus video modules, tons of citations around pregnancy and postpartum. Well, Born Free is an umbrella under which there's going to be a lot of other courses. And the second course in this anthology is called Clear and Free, Your Solution to Persistent HPV. It's a collaborative effort between me and Mimi Linquist of the Medicine Podcast. She um, is a relative expert in, uh, I say relative because I don't consider anybody a full expert in anything, but Mimi has gone deep into human papillomavirus and some of the ways that we can use lifestyle to augment the immune system in hopes that your routine screening for HPV or your routine pap smears are going to come up negative and clear. So you can go another three to five years and not even think about it until your next um, appointment, whereby hopefully you'll screen negative again. So the typical path that many women experience of all ages in their OBGYN clinic is, hey, you're due for a pap smear and we're going to test for HPV as well. If one of those comes back abnormal, your OBGYN is going to say, oh, darn it, it's abnormal. Why don't you come back for a repeat screening in six months or 12 months? And this process continues, right, until you end up with either a progression of abnormal cells in the cervix caught on pap smear or a persistence of human papillomavirus, meaning your body has not been able to integrate the message of this virus, right? Remember, viruses are not living things. So in the meantime, your OBGYN or your midwife or nurse practitioner hasn't given you any tools in order to help support your immune system through diet, through movement, through sleep, through stress management, through hydration, through all of those modifiable lifestyle factors so that you can be sure that if you had an HPV um, positive screen initially, that the next time it's going to be negative. Now, the other part of that conversation, of course, is, hey, I got the HPV vaccine. Aren't I safe now? Well, the problem with Gardasil 9, which is the primary vaccine that is offered to young men and women as early as age nine, has not been demonstrated to be either effective at preventing cervical cancer nor safe because of the aluminum adjuvants and everything else. So there's a lot of controversy around HPV and cervical cancer and even cervical cancer screening methods along with this vaccine. What do I do? Should I get it? Should I not get it? Should my little girls get this vaccine? And so 
given the sort of swirling <laughs> pool of information and misinformation out there, I went deep as well. And Mimi and I teamed up in order to clarify for everybody out there the realities around what HPV and cervical cancer screening looks like, what can be done while you're waiting for your follow-ups in order to support your immune system to integrate the message of that virus and avoid any abnormal cells developing and hopefully avoid painful biopsies or even worse, LEAP procedures, cold knife comb procedures, and of course, worst case scenario, cervical cancer. There's so much that's in your power. Your doctors, your practitioners probably aren't maybe ed educated or incentivized to share all of that information, but we're going to do that through this course, as well as all of the reality realities around vaccines, especially Gardasil 9. Um, we look at data from the United States and elsewhere in the world. We speak to um, attorneys who are litigating on this topic around Gardasil 9. What you can expect from the course is around 90 lessons, self-guided and we're going to also offer monthly calls for six months after you enroll with me and Mimi, where we're going to be able to answer all of your questions and provide you with that support that perhaps you aren't getting from the healthcare professionals that you've entrusted um, your, your cervical cancer screening and your well woman care. So we get into HPV, we get into cervical cancer screening, we get into the immune system, vaccines, viruses. It's everything you've wanted to know about any of those topics. Go to the link in the show notes and you'll find your way to book an enrollment call and we'll get you enrolled right there. We're going to be enrolling in October. I hope to see you there. <music>
and hyper-professionalization, yeah. you know, which we've all been pushing back on. I mean, gosh, you brought the word patriarchy up. I wasn't going to do it, but patriarchy, like the essence of patriarchy. I don't think people under appreciate that. I think pa people think they think feminism, they, these types of terms come up. But what patriarchy to me really means is that when we start to objectify, then we can classify. Yes. And once we can classify, we can stratify. And that whole notion, right, that you have value only if these conditions are met, that to me is really the essence of patriarchy when you take a 15,000 foot view. And that has degraded our societies. Right. It's degraded. It's led us to war. It has um, degraded a woman's role in society, especially a black woman's role in society. And I think um, in South Africa, I mean, talk about a complicated political space for the past hundred years. How how do you think the politics of South Africa, in a very patriarchal way of of um, I mean, gosh, even consider most of the major countries in Africa. And by the way, I have been—I just said Africa. I meant South Africa. Um, I've been to Cape Town while I was there. I was doing an analysis of the healthcare systems. Believe it or not, when I was on a studying abroad, wow. and I spent some time in Cape Town, went to Robben Island, and stood in the spot where Robin, uh, where um, Nelson Mandela was breaking rocks, being spoken to by Dennis Brutus who was one of our professors on the trip, who was like 80 at the time. He also happened to be University of Pittsburgh uh, sociology or political history professor. He was speaking to us while I was standing on the spot, which was, by the way, next to the spot that Dennis Brutus used to sit as a white, he was a right, white Afrikaner wow. who was sitting next to Nelson Mandela breaking the rocks with him. I had this really spiritual kind of experience there. And, and so... Um, what was really special about that is, again, you go back into the metropolitan center of Cape Town. Cape Town is one of the most beautiful cities that you will ever step foot in. I mean, it is, you know, Table Mountain is right behind it. It's gorgeous. But as soon as you go around the mountain and you end up in the townships, you see a very, very different picture here. And this is patriarchy Indeed. at its at its finest or its worst, depending on how you want to frame it. Um Johannesburg, I suspect, with Soweto being, you know, the birthplace of Nelson Mandela, I suspect that there is a very, very different feeling around words like patriarchy and maybe even progress and whatnot in the townships than you would find in the metropolitan areas. How do you think politics is going to play into um, what we appreciate about the role of, of these, I'm using air quotes on my end, midwives in townships that historically are violent um, unsafe, um, not very hospitable places for people of color. Yeah. I mean, back to the conversation I was having a few minutes ago about survival, this is something yeah. we will confront <laughs> while we're there. Right. And, you know, for those who don't know, South Africa has a like kind of tripartite racial stratification. So black, white, and colored people are distinctly, <laughs> named different, um, segregated and housed with one another, married to one another, access different kinds of healthcare and well-being and wellness from one another. And, you know, midwives are also subjected to this, you know, kind of politic of race. That is their reality. That is also a ramification of, mm. of apartheid, 
Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm curious about what your experience in, in Cape Town was in terms of assessing the healthcare system there. But the, what I'm most interested in is, is the distinction that you made between the metropolitan areas yeah. and the townships. Like these are dramatic, drastic differences it's it's beyond whoever listening if you don't know it is beyond your wildest imagination how quickly it changes it's like you cross the street and bam you are you are in a community of a hundred thousand people living in tin tin shacks and you will just yeah at a restaurant that has you know steaks for 60 bucks like unbelievable that's right yeah so this unbelievable difference is also the difference in healthcare that women are also facing. So when I say there's a state-of-the-art hospital, <laughs> and then there's a township where there's a midwife who goes around. Now, what I should also name, and I, and I failed to mention this, and I, I'm assuming it, and maybe you all are also assuming it. Many of these midwives are elders. Yeah. They're in their 80s, in their 90s. They are centurions. They're approaching 100 years old. Many of these midwives are tasked with keeping communities alive, not just pregnant women, pregnant birthing people, but keeping whole communities alive. And they are elders and they are also extremely tired and need the opportunity to pass their medicine down <laughs> to someone who's endowed with the medicine. And so there's also a breakage in terms of the passing on of, of the wisdom and the medicine. We are actually seeing like some concern about whether or not the tradition will last, will like live. Um, so Machila Mose will talk about that, but but that political landscape that you described, Nathan, in South Africa, wherein on one side of the street, there are mansions and on the other side of the street, there are townships. Those are so stark that, that they like cast immediate tears in your eyes. They're extremely stark experiences. Um, that you know, I'm I'm thinking of what creative ways to ready and prepare a group for, but in terms of how the midwives navigate that, you know, for many of them, there's such a sense of pride and privilege for them because they have the medicine. <laughs> so there's not a lot of like pity or um, or admiration about like what's on the other side of the street for them, their wisdom. Um, really oversaturates and overcomes that. Should their material conditions be different? 100%. They should be. Um, but there is not a mechanism in terms of the ministries of health in South Africa, in terms of governances, in terms of political landscape. There's not a mechanism to make sure that they're funded and protected and that their healing is understood yeah. and translated to the masses there's not a mechanism for that and nor is there a desire or willingness so when we go and we like seed our our little payment for the time that we're there we're sustaining them just a little bit at a time we're barely we're ba we're barely helping them to hold on to this culture and preserve it and but we're doing our own kind of systematic change making by supporting their art, by supporting their craft, by supporting their community and the communities that they they grow and, and preserve. And the lineages of, of traditional healing and medicine that they also preserve. So that stark 
contrast is something we can't avoid while we're there. It's 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 one hundred percent a part of the culture and the and the 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 evidence of South Africa's struggle. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It's sort of um I used to go to Malawi. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I used to do a lot of work in Malawi, East Africa, just one of the slivers, probably mm. one of the five most impoverished nations in the world. I don't want to say it's number one because, you know, it's hard to compare that. But when you look at their um, their statistics, economically, health, whatever, I mean, they are down near the bottom. And I was compelled to go there in college and ultimately ended up starting an international nonprofit to raise money for the community-based organizations doing the work in um, these catchment areas outside of the major cities. And, and it's not a metropolitan city like, you know, Lilongwe is the capital there. It's not a metropolitan city like Cape, you know, Johannesburg. It's um, a pretty darn poor city. And then there's actually even more poor people, like poor people are even more poor outside of that in the rural areas, which is you know, pretty typical of most nations. But um, when I would tell people that I was going, the first thing out of their mouth would be like, oh, they're so poor, like this almost pity. And I never had the experience that there was any pity desired or like they were, you know, it's like kind of cliche, but it's like they were so happy. They were like, they made me reflect on how much money I spend on things that don't bring me happiness. So, you know, cliches aside, it is interesting how we don't like to look at this stuff. Like, we don't want to recognize that mm. Soweto, for the past, I mean, since the Grand Apartheid, has remained one of the most impoverished, packed in, I mean, dare I call it slum. I, I don't think they would call it a slum, but I think a lot of people, economically speaking, would be like, how on earth is this giant collection of people not cared for when we have, you know, massive um, malls and things just miles away on the, you know, uh, you know, down the road in the major city. So, I'm, you know, it's, it's really curious to me that it's almost like we have to look at this. We have to actually be there and feel through the pain as a means of self-reflecting on our, the way that we show up in the world. In other words, you can't read about South Africa and appreciate it. You have to go into these townships and just be there. Yeah. That's why 100%. I'm going. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, thank you for that. Oh my God, I feel like that's so beautiful, beautifully said and, and well said about just, well, one, about how African diaspora communities experience themselves. Oh yeah, themselves, I can't imagine. <laughs> which is like all this city that you all create and like, you know, without naming names, because there's a lot of philanthropic efforts that, you know, actually, uh, thrive on this narrative that like poor people are the most unhappy people in the world and like if only we would go make that change, yeah. change that <laughs> when in fact like when we get there we actually have we realize there's an untapped joy <laughs> that they remind us of and again i say that to say that of course should their material conditions change of course but there's also a humility and a power and privilege um scale and paradigm that we're not investigating and, you know, I think I shared this in the last podcast, but I'll share it again. And and we can, like, talk through this. But the last time I went to South Africa, myself and another midwife put together all of these, like, birth kits for the indigenous midwives, right? We had, like, gloves and, you know, <laughs> umbilical cord scissors and, like, fundus tape and all this amazing stuff. And, like, 
we made it so cute and we were so excited and proud and we like brought it to them and they literally were like ripping it apart looking at it and like laughing what is this silly stuff is in the ground you know the i measure wow. with my hands right like i listen with my eyes like they were just so explicit about how like how baffling it was that we thought we had something to bring <laughs> and and you know i don't say that as a way of like shaming us you know as like trying to make a contribution and trying to be a gift but but to really humble us and to think about and be more mindful about like what it is that yeah. we actually need to gain like what is the gift we're there to receive and how we honor that and how we step into that and sit in that seat is important and you know the manchilo the the midwife laughed and she was like next time bring them something beautiful like some earrings or something to put on like they'd be much more happy with like something cute to wear wow but noted <laughs> she did name and i will say this. right noted she did say and i will say this knowing that nathan and i are leaving in a month God help us. I don't want to inundate us that there is a midwife who would appreciate those birth kits. Right. And I have a sample of one and I'll, I'll share it with you, Nathan, like via text or something. I'll send you a picture of it. But she was like, now that midwife could use it. Right. But, you know, just just again, like thinking through, like being in the spirit of receiving, especially when learning from our peers, learning from traditional midwifery, like allowing traditional midwifery to be the yeah. expertise. Is so crucial and so critical and so necessary. And, you know, I have self-forgiveness and self-reflection. I'm like, why the hell do we bring those crazy birth kits with us? But, you know, at the same time, it was such a yeah. major learning lesson for me. And that's not true for all midwives in South Africa. Some of them yeah. would be, like, delighted to receive that kind of birth kit. But others, there might be something else that would yeah. be more responsive to that. We so will. There's just so much so much to gain. And, and there's indigenous midwives all over the yeah. world. Nathan, this is like our first thing. We're just going to one area. Right? I wonder if we could organize so. one of these, and I'll join again in Mexico, torn and with the parteras in Mexico. Thinking about this, I've got, I've got the hookup yes. because my mother-in-law is like deeply connected Let's to go. her hometown of Cuernavaca. But anyways, yeah, it's you're right. I mean, this is not just yeah. a uniquely, um, you know, Cape you know, the, 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 the horn of Africa issue. I mean, this is kind of a global issue, including in our own country. So this is not to say that they need us over there. That is not what this trip is about. I learned that hard lesson in Malawi where it was like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like I could have given you the money it cost me to fly here and it would have done more good than me coming over here and like whipping around, you know, right. vernacular that has no purpose in community-based care of people living with HIV AIDS. Um, having said that, that was why I stopped doing it. That's why the the, the program fell apart and it was mm. for good reason. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of us, you know, mm. I remember there was a Nicholas Kristof wrote a, an essay back in the day around the time of the division of, of Sudan. And he had, he had written about this study they did where they said, you know, um, the title of it was Save the Darfur Puppy. And what they had offered college students was an opportunity to donate to save a dog that was sick and needed like an eye surgery. Or you could save, to, you could you could donate to this charity that is going to provide food or care in some way for orphans in South Sudan. And more people donated to the dog. This is it. I, yeah? I heard this kind yeah. of... 
<laughs> so the People only reason that this is actually relevant to this conversation is not to say that people don't care about orphans in South Sudan, but that problem seems so tremendously large that how is my $5 going to make a difference? But if I gave $5 to this dog, then that's 10% of whatever or whatever. Like that's a giant chunk towards getting him that $1,000 surgery, that dog. And it, it kind of, it just clues you into this sort of psychology of this when problems seem so, um, uh, you know, mm. they're, they're big beyond our wildest imagination. We tend to withdraw from that. And I think that's what, what it means to be in these townships to say, how am I complaining about X, Y, or Z in my daily life whenever there's 100,000 people here dancing every night, sharing food, and still don't even have enough to buy their kids toys or like... Um, you know, they can't count right. on necessarily being able to, you know, to, to make their bear, their bus fare to get to that job that they were lucky enough to land. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it seems so confronting for people that are so far removed. So I think getting ourselves back into this space, sitting with the women that are doing this work, and I'm sure that there are some men that are circulating as well, but, but really kind of feeling into that and just being just being open-minded about it. And, 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 and the way I know that there's an, there's an open-mindedness require, requirement here is that when you go back, like after I would go back from Malawi, I would feel bad for spending a dollar, let alone $50 on dinner. It was just like, oh my God, what are we doing here? Um, so there's a, there's a little piece of humility. Mm-hmm. There's also some genuine interest for me in learning from women who've sat with so many births and who have a very, very different, truly holistic approach to what caring for other people looks like. Are there any other aspects? Yes. Um, like, like what is, what are a couple of things that you are hoping to gain from sitting with some of these women? You've kind of already touched on it, but maybe you can like, you know, ring off anything else that can be fine. Yeah. I mean, to build on what we've already discussed, there's also going to be an opportunity to go to some black women owned farms. We're actually going to be engaging with environment and environmental justice as a form of healing the whole time. Um, there's a special trip to what's called the Siani Center, which is a traditional healer that Nelson Mandela actually works with. But there you will see South African traditional healers who are being initiated and they prepare this beautiful ancestral meal for us. Um, and that is such a humbling, beautiful, delicious meal um, that I'm really excited. Yeah, seriously, right? Um, there's an opportunity where we get to go to this profound, beautiful, vegan, pan-Africanist chef, and we it's called the dinner party, and we all sit around one table, even if there's other guests there, and we have a special meal that is designed from the African di- diaspora, and it's actually a heavily vegan ch- uh, meal, but so holistic and beautiful that we like can't get enough of it. So there's just so many amazing aspects and dynamics, but my hope is like, what do we bring back? Like, how do we intervene? How is just going on this trip an intervention for so many of us and for, for so many of our siblings in this work and in this movement who, you know, um, listen to this amazing platform, who gather with us or who we convene, you know, through our conferences and through the other yeah. interventions that we do in the world. Like, how are we bringing mm. it back? <laughs> That to me, and obviously in the safest, most reasonable and practical way possible, how are we bringing the wisdom and the knowledge 
um, back to our communities. And so to me, that is like, that's the ripple effect that I'm hoping for. That's the domino effect that I'm, I'm praying for and meditating on as we are a month out from this just remarkable journey. So, and I do hope that it results in other global convenings where we're looking to the traditional healers and midwives of the global South to share with us how survival and thriving and healing is possible, you know, towards like, towards a form of revolution, to be honest. So, you know, I have my personal reasons for going and wanting to gain and understand and, and, um, you know, be a blessing to the world, of course. And then, you know, I hope that you all who are with us, and I can't wait to meet Sarah, who I haven't met. Um, I hope that you all who are with us, like divine something yeah. incredible yeah. <laughs> to share back with the world. So I feel like I'll see you back in this very seat just to debrief and, and cry and, and weep and express gratitude for the journey that we're about to go on. Yeah, amazing. Now. So I look forward. What to would, uh, as kind of, just kind of wrap it up. And then I, I certainly want to give people the opportunity to uh, find it you know, find you, find Restore Forward in order to lend their support, or maybe they, you know, it's not too late to join. I just want people to know you're still able to come. It, right. For me, it would be hard to say like a month from today, I'm going to South Africa, but I fortunately jumped on <laughs> in time to clear out the schedule and make sure I'm okay there. Um, but uh, what would a revolution in maternity care in the United States look like for you? Oh, Finish with an easy oh one my there goodness. For you. I think about this all the time, Nathan, like what does a revolution in the United States look like for maternal health? And that, you know, traditional midwives are obviously at the forefront, but also not just at the forefront, but they're centered also. Because I, I think all the time we're like, let black midwives lead, let black midwives lead. Sure thing. But like, are we in a commitment to care for them and hold them and make them well and repair them? and cover them when there are storms and when all of these like kind of matrices of oppression yeah. like come for them. Like are we encircling traditional midwifery in the way that we should be? Are we holding it as a politic and as a, as a, as a doctrine, yeah. as a religion, like we really should be because it is, it is life-saving. So to me, it's not just black traditional midwives at the front, but also them at the center, which means that us as a community has to be, divinely, unapologetically, unendingly Ooh. encircling them and their well-being. So until we can commit to that, I don't see a revolution coming, but I, I but I am praying yeah. and meditating on one. And hopefully it's televised. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> yes. Um, Savannah, you are a joy. I am so stoked to meet you finally in person and to be yes. eating some traditional South African gourmet with you and dancing and yeah. singing and holding space and just kind of feeling through this. Um, and I just know Sarah is so excited. Mm -hmm. We're both just really, really um, honored to be able to be invited on the trip. Maybe you can tell us real quickly who were, you know, mm -hmm what's the composition of the group um, as a means of trying to convey to people who is yeah. this for and maybe who is this not for? Yeah. So the group is a, an amazing group. Of course it <laughs> I'm is. like, woo, it's a legacy <laughs> league coming, coming on this trip to South Africa with us. So 
you know, this is for anyone who considers themselves touching the realm of maternal health practitioners. Um, so we have everyone from, you know, neonatal care support. We have midwives, we have doulas, we have reproductive justice advocates. So we have non-physicians coming as well. We have uh, medical providers coming. We have birth center owners coming. Um, we have um, an amazing contingent of black traditional healers and midwives who are coming with us. Right now, we're trying to cap the trip around 25, and we are at 16. So there's still seats available, y'all. <laughs> um, so that's the amazing thing. Um, so you can come if you have a commitment and a dedication to Black maternal health. Um, we really hope to see you in South Africa and Johannesburg. We are really excited and looking forward to also some students who are coming. There's like some student doulas, some student midwives, some student... MDs who are coming with us. So it's really like, I would say like a mixed group, but to me, I'm just like, we're all in good company because we're all in the family and the legacy of yeah. midwifery care and and yeah. and championing midwifery care. So that's what brings us at home with one another. So I'm really, really stoked and excited to have such, a, such an amazing makeup of, of folks um, who are coming and just, lovely people also who whom are dear to me. So really looking forward to it. So if you're a practitioner, if you're an academician, even if you're in research, you should come. Um, there's a special home also for anti-violence advocates to come. If you do work around violence against women, trauma-informed care, you should come. Pediatricians, there's going to be a conversation for you in this time. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> So uh, the trip is from November 1st through November 8th, 2023 is the year I think that we're in. Right. <laughs> um, there probably, That's there will be more trips, but you know, with all the stuff around travel restrictions and everything that may happen with another COVID thing, I, I feel very like lucky that we can yeah. go and do this trip now. I mean, you just never know what the future holds. So if you guys are thinking about yeah. joining us, the cost of the trip, do you mind if I say that? And then I'm going to... Yeah, please. So $5,500 gets you everything but the flights. And um, the uh, there's this little bit of free time, which I think is really great, where I can maybe just go off and like kind of be by myself with my feelings because I know there's going to be a lot of feelings. And um, well, there was one other thing I was going to say. Oh, so we've, we've Born Free Method has made a couple donations, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ante that up a little bit. If, if anybody listening joins yes. as a result of hearing this episode we'll kick in another $250 for your you know to to offset a little bit of the cost we can't do more i wish we could do more but if it's if it's a matter of me getting more people there that i think really need to have this um type of to be in this type of space um i mean i'm there to support that so so that offer stands um are you closing applications savannah at any point or is it basically yeah, when we reach 25 participants, we're going to close the application. I wish I had a date for you. Maybe we can caption that, but um, I don't have a date right now. <clears throat> but I do know that we're, you know, we, we have at least like six okay. or seven spots still okay. available, not more for folks to join. And thank you so much for the donations, for making it accessible, for making it possible for people to come who otherwise wouldn't have been able to have a yes. We're so grateful and excited for that. Um, and if folks are like, 
we can't come, but we want to be in a learning session afterward and, and we still want to give and we want to support. I, I would welcome all of those different ways of participating totally. and being a part of this. Totally. With us. Savannah, thank you. Thank you. We kept that in within the hour. I know that we're going to be chatting a lot more in South Africa. I can't wait to see you in Joburg. And uh, um, we will put everything in the show notes, guys. If you have birth supplies, if you want to make a donation that, that can be put towards another birth worker or educator or healer of any kind who you, you know, who you know would want to go on this trip, even if you can't make it, please reach out. Um, Savannah is available at yeah. uh, Restore Forward on Instagram. You can just message her there or it's RestoreNY.org. If you'd like to um, check out the website, and of course, you can always reach out to me at BelovedHolistics.com. Savannah, thanks again for coming and doing this. Thank you so much. So great. See you in a month. See you in a month.